when I go and transferring a patient from the intensive care unit, I go to see that patient down there, I get the automatic, oh, are you here to take me up to my room <laughs> type of question as if I'm transport in the hospital because I guess that's where they see most of the black males in the hospital, maybe. I don't even know if that's true. Cleveland is a predominantly African-American city, but most of the faculty members in the department of OBGYN are white or not African-American. And one of my attendings on the maternal and fetal medicine rotation commented about a patient in a way that I thought was very racially charged. Nationwide, the population of African-Americans in our general U.S. population is about 13%, and it's much higher in many other cities where a lot of the medical schools and teaching hospitals are located. The population ranges from 30% to upwards of like 60 70% in a place like Baltimore, so it really varies a lot, but it's much higher than the general population. In contrast, the population of physicians who are African-American is about 4%, so the number is a pretty significant disparity compared to the general population, but it's accentuated when you think about what it's like in many of the teaching hospitals where young doctors are trained. So that's sort of where we are now. Hello and welcome back to the House Podcast, the New England Journal's podcast for and about physicians in training. I'm Dan Weisberg, an internal medicine resident at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. And I'm Ramya Ramaswamy, an editorial fellow at the New England Journal of Medicine. And we're back after a hiatus to talk about being an African-American trainee in medicine. The first voice that you just heard was Dr. Daryl Powell. And Daryl was part of the inspiration for this podcast on being a black resident. After we recorded it, Daryl tragically passed away after a brief illness. I, along with his other friends and family, colleagues, and patients, are struggling to deal with such a profound and untimely loss. Daryl was uniquely warm, intelligent, and generous, and he continues to inspire those who knew him to carry on in his spirit. One of the many ways in which Daryl impacted trainees in medicine was through his dedication to engaging the residency around issues of race, diversity, and social justice. And in remembering him, we hope that this podcast extends this legacy to our listeners. Daryl was the chief resident in the combined internal medicine pediatrics residency program at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Boston Children's Hospital. And he describes the experience of a black resident as an isolating one. So I was admitting a patient from the ED, an interesting patient, like had this chest pain that was sort of unclear what was going on and certainly had some risk factors for cardiac chest pain. So what I like to do is to go see the patients in the ED, that way I can see them and sort of get a jump start on the notes because sometimes it can be a pretty busy night. So I went down to see him and as I do, because of my previous experiences, to be honest, in the hospital, I always introduce myself as Dr. Powell just so that I establish that's the relationship and that's who I am and I'm going to be taking care of you for the night. And I got the same puzzled look that I'm used to getting because, oh, he's going to say that I look young or something like that. He looked at me in this sort of puzzled way and then he was like, you're a doctor? It's like, yes, I'm, you know, your doctor for the night. And then he just looks at me puzzled and just, I'm expecting him to say, oh, you look young. But instead he says, oh, you look like a street thug. And so I was quite taken aback. And it's one of those things where my instinct was to sort of get defensive and to like actually like challenge him. But I just couldn't do anything but to look at him and just with a puzzled look. And I just said, oh. And then he quickly apologized and said, oh, I didn't mean anything by it. I just was surprised that you were my doctor. So it was in that moment. And this was the beginning of my encounter with him. So it's not like I had already done the history and the physical exam. 
and then was just done with the encounter and could go on about my business. But it was the very first thing that he said to me. And so I had a moment of when I was like, well, what is my recourse here? No one that I've spoken to about this really knows what the best response is. Lachelle Weeks is also a resident in internal medicine at the Brigham. But there has to be a way of both reinforcing the idea that certain behaviors are not okay and not acceptable, but also being respectful of the fact that there's a professional obligation to treat somebody who's sick and who's coming to you for care. And how do those two things fit together? As a provider and as a human, I have a right to not feel uncomfortable or discriminated against in my work environment. And so does that mean that if a patient is overtly racist towards me, that I should recuse myself of being on their provider team? Does it mean that I should point out to them where they're erring in terms of their interaction? I'm not sure of the best response. It did bring up to me, what's my outlet for this? Like, who do I tell about this? It's not like he was a coworker, you know? I feel like it would have been even easier if it were like an attending that did this or a coworker that did this. But when it's a patient, there's no punitive action that can be taken against him. I mean, interestingly, I have heard of these situations happen before. There was actually an article written in Pediatrics that sometimes, actually from the hospital that I trained at at medical school, there was an issue where patients actually refused a Black resident to take care of them. And that's sort of where the hospital drew the line. And they actually, the high ups, like CEO, president of the hospital said, well, then you're not welcome in our hospital um, to be taken care of. So there is certainly a line somewhere, but, you know, it's not like this patient was refusing my care. He just said something quite offensive. Racism in the hospital raises the larger question of the role that the hospital plays in the community. So I'm Damon Tweedy, and I'm an assistant professor of psychiatry at Duke University Medical Center and also a staff psychiatrist at the Durham Veteran Affairs Medical Center, also in Durham. And last year, I published a book called Black Man in a White Coat, A Doctor's Reflections on Race and Medicine. And it really was a culmination of many years of writing smaller pieces about the intersection of race and medicine. Providers in an urban hospital are faced with issues of racial justice on a daily basis. Like if the hospital just sort of sees it as a responsibility to only deal with medical problems and medical illness, it's really missing a lot of the larger issue. Because so much of what we see when you come to the hospital is not about health care itself. It's really about this larger community of problems that leads one to the hospital, right? And so I think what is the role of hospitals in sort of reaching out to the communities and meeting people in the communities and trying to address preventative measures? And so there's so many layers to that. My feeling is that for the hospital being such a major employer, such a major part of the communities, there really needs to be a rethinking of the role of the hospital in the overall health of the community, beyond just sort of delivering the actual, um, what we might call medical services. Earlier this year, Lachelle Weeks and a group of her co-residents asked the leadership of the hospital and the residency to take a more active role in its approach to race and politics. I'll actually back up. So. My brother is a community organizer and was very active in like Black Lives Matter at its sort of inception right around the time when Mike Brown was killed. And then sort of from that point in time up until around, I think I was in fourth year med school, sort of enjoying fourth year when Freddie Gray was killed. And then sort of fast forward to the summertime when Philando Castile was killed. And it just seemed like these events just kept happening and happening where... African-American men, transgendered individuals, African-American women, people who were mentally ill were being brutalized by police and the victims of police violence. 
And because of the world we live in with social media, it was auto-playing on Facebook and on Twitter and on all of these different accounts. And I think that when Philando Castile's murder happened, I and several other residents, particularly residents of color, felt as though there was no discussion of it, that we came to work those days and we were on service and it was just kind of business as usual. No one was really talking about this, what felt to me like a very big political event and no one was discussing it at all. The patients weren't discussing it, the attendings weren't discussing it, residents weren't discussing it out in the open. And so I and a couple of other residents felt that it was something that needed to be talked about because there were a lot of feelings that we were having and we couldn't imagine that other people weren't feeling the same. So we organized a group of individuals to just have a conversation. And that's kind of how the Social Justice Committee at Brigham, as it is now, came to be, was just through initiating conversations among residents about topics of racial injustice, bias, police violence, etc. And so that brings us to where we are now, where we have a committee that's working on these topics and various resident projects on these topics. And so I feel that, and I feel that people are, for obvious reasons and probably for good reasons, looking to the people of color to sort of give them the cues on, is this something that we should be fighting for? How do you feel, et cetera? But it's definitely hard as one of the few people of color in a majority institution to always be looked upon to sort of carry that torch and just get the fire stoked for people. I think that it's definitely hard to do that. And it's not as though there are not consequences for being the person who speaks up about issues of race in a majority institution. It's not a benign or something that anybody should take lightly or does take lightly. No one wants to be seen as the angry black person who's always pulling the race card which the reality of the situation is that if every time there is some sort of racial bias or that's either explicit or implicit, if I call it out every single time and I'm the only one calling it out every single time, it becomes what is expected of me and it becomes a part of my identity, not necessarily always in a positive way. And people don't necessarily always take that in positively. The isolation that Lachelle describes by the numbers is a stark reality at many training programs. Damon Tweedy describes some of the demographics when it comes to trainees of color in our intro. It turns out that the demographics are most stark when it comes to African-American men. So last year in 2015, the Association of American Medical Colleges released a report where it looked at some of this information over time, and it's found that African-American men were actually entering medical school with basically about the same numbers as they were compared to 1978, which is pretty striking when you think about the significant increase in the overall U.S. population, but also the population of physicians in every other group, which have increased considerably since 1978. So what's happened during that same time is that the African-American female in medicine have increased a lot. So you have almost two to one in terms of proportion of African-American women in medicine to men. And that's very different than other demographic groups where you're talking more of a 50-50 or maybe 55-45 men split. So that's a different dynamic that we've seen evolve over time. So I think there is this one aspect of it where you just have to show people that we're here and people need to see that these are fields that they can go into. Because what can happen when you have underrepresentation in different fields is that 
when people don't see those types of mentors that look like them, they tend to not go into those fields. For instance, like pediatrics, I'm the only black male pediatrics resident in the entire program at the Boston Combined Residency Program. And there's about 120 to 140 residents, for instance. So it's sort of this self-fulfilling prophecy that people will come and they not see people that look at them and then they'll apply into other fields. But the other part of it is how do we then, when you're here in these programs, how do we then make you feel like you actually belong here when there's not many people that look like you? Daryl, Lachelle, and Damon all describe the importance of mentoring and support networks for the Black community in medicine. While students for the National Medical Association, SNMA, provide such a network to medical students, those ties can dissolve in residency. Daryl, Lachelle, and some of their co-residents created committees within the medicine and pediatric programs to bolster this support within their residency programs and have reached out to other local programs to grow this network. These networks are about mentorship, building a pipeline of Black trainees, and representing the interests and concerns of the Black community in medicine. This year, due in large part to Daryl's efforts, the Boston Children's Pediatrics Program matched its most diverse intern class. So what is the next step? I was never a huge fan of so-called cultural competency, which was a huge thing that I feel like a lot of medical schools rolled out, like everybody in their first year, they had this longitudinal curriculum of cultural competency, which to me was like where they would be like, here's what a Muslim family looks like, and here's how you should address this type of family, and here's what's cultural about this type of culture and how you might want to address them differently. And I think it presupposes that you can then become sort of an expert in every culture and know like all the nuances of each culture and how to interact with them. And I just don't think that anyone can do that. I don't think you can like actually teach somebody that. But I like the direction that things are going now where there's more of this focus on implicit bias and cultural humility, where it's just realizing like, I don't know what your culture is. But I know that I should not just assume that my culture is superior to yours or that even though I may be of the dominant culture, and we all have those aspects of being male in medicine as being of the dominant culture and sort of understanding that's not the default and shouldn't be the default and like always challenge that. So I think things like thinking about implicit bias, thinking about cultural humility, and there's actually data that shows that patients get different care based on their race, even though the standard of care is one thing. And even though the stories that were presented to them were exactly the same and the only difference is their race. So I think the more that we can talk about implicit bias and cultural humility, the more we can be a better system for our patients, but also for the residents as well and for the trainees. Because I think a lot of times you can feel like you can't totally be yourself when you're in the minority group in a residency program. And that's something that I always try and challenge and try and still be as much myself as I can while being professional and not sort of losing that identity and just sort of becoming part of the dominant cultural identity. Daryl describes one way in particular that he found his voice. So it's funny when people used to ask me, so why sickle cell? I used to have to sort of dance around the issue and say like, well, you know, I like hematology and like I'm interested in like peace adult care. When really it's like, I feel very connected to this patient population and I can't help think that their race plays a role in that. And then I sort of see it as almost somewhat of a responsibility (laughs) to these people as a black person from Philadelphia myself to go back there and help this population who has real medical problems, but also how their race is playing a role in like probably them not getting the best care that they could be getting. So that was a big motivation in me going into sickle cell transition care. 
As you can probably tell, Daryl inspired everybody he met, patients and colleagues. He put them at ease, allowing them to be as comfortable as themselves as he was. His commitment to social justice and to diversity in residency training will have a long-lasting impact on our program. And by sharing his thoughts on this podcast, I hope that that legacy will spread even farther. Daryl wrote in an email to the entire Department of Medicine, Stay Woke Brigham. And this phrase has reverberated throughout Brigham and Women's and the Boston Children's and BMC, where Daryl has worked since his death. But perhaps Daryl's biggest impact was in the individual relationships that he made with colleagues, patients, and with friends. An intern in July can't fix the whole world, but they can still make a difference. They can reach back to a college student or someone else who might be struggling, and they can be motivation to that person. So never lose sight of the role that you can play in other people's lives. And that concludes this episode of The House. We'd like to dedicate this podcast to Daryl Powell. Special thanks to Lachelle Weeks and Damon Tweedy. If any of you listeners are interested in creating these types of programs, diversity and inclusion committees, social justice committees, we're going to put some information up on our website, and I encourage you guys to log on and check it out. And that's at resident360.nejm.org. We want to thank the New England Journal for supporting this podcast. Kathy Stern, Debbie Molina, Marybeth Hamill, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Karen Buckley, Steve Morrissey, and Jeffrey Drazen.